Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskan. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 22nd of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The emergency department in our ladies' hospital in Navan was due to be shut down permanently on the 30th of June. The HSE decision to close the unit was paused by the Minister for Health. And almost two months ago to the day, Stephen Donnelly told the Dáil he hoped that his decision to put the closure on hold would give everyone the opportunity to engage in meaningful discussion. I think we can listen now to a little bit of what the Minister said two months ago. Here's uh, Stephen Donnelly, as I say, speaking in the doll. I have instructed the HSE not at this time to proceed, not to proceed at this time with any proposed reconfiguration at Cavan. We need to allow for meaningful uh, discussion, meaningful engagement with elected members on all sides of the House and other stakeholders, including the community, including the clinicians. We need to assess all of that in the round and then decide where we're going. But I want to be very clear for the reasons I've raised, for the reasons member of government have raised, and indeed for reasons raised this evening. The government position is absolutely clear. I have instructed the HSE to not proceed with what they had intended to do on the 30th of June. Aim 2 founder and leader, Peter Tobin, is a TD for Mead West and chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign group and on the line with us uh, this morning. Very good morning to you, Peter Tobin. I do want to ask you about uh, the next meeting the group is planning on Tuesday of next week and where you think you'll take your campaign from here. But before uh, you tell us about that, uh, maybe you could respond to what you've just been hearing from the Minister two months ago, because he said, we need to allow for meaningful discussion and engagement with elected members on all sides of the House and other stakeholders, including the community and clinicians. 
Uh, is there a question of the doll records being corrected here? I think so. I think um, what you're seeing here is a minister uh, who is in massive conflict currently with the HSC. Um, the, the, the story that's HS, that LMFM broke last week was a very important story in relation to the FOIs that were submitted uh, to the HSC. And they show, if you like, a conflict between the HSC CEO, Paul Reid, um, and the department and the minister. Um, I've been looking back over my own notes on this, and it's just incredible to think that, you know, we had Paul Reid criticise the minister live on air uh, in a radio uh, interview just uh, in June, and we had Jerry McEntee criticise the minister and the HSE for gagging, um, and we had a situation where um, meetings that were organised by the minister uh, were cancelled, um, and you know, that we had the HSE putting out statements that it was going to close the A&E by the 31st of June, the minister then having to reverse that decision and force the HSE to withdraw those statements. So we have a major fracturous, uh, dysfunctional relationship between the HSE and the minister. So what happens is when the minister goes into the doll and states that there will be a proper, full engagement with community uh, and clinicians, in me in terms of the future of NAV and A&E. What happens is that gets changed um, and the, the HSE come up with their own terms of reference then uh, for a, a review and a terms of reference that does not include a future for the A&E in Navin. Well, terms of reference that does not include uh, engaging with the community in any way mm. in terms of the future of that A&E. Well, well I, I, I don't think we should be surprised that it, it doesn't include any alternative uh, to closing the emergency department. Uh, it doesn't include the idea of investing in the hospital so you don't have to close the emergency department. Uh, and we shouldn't be surprised by that because the first thing that the terms of reference say that this is, this is a process uh, for yeah. the next steps. It's a process for closing the emergency department. So, so in other words, the, the, the closure of the A&E is built into the terms of reference which were uh, which is designing the 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 review that's happening over the next month now anybody that knows anything about empirical study about research about investigation is you carry out the investigation with an open mind and you allow for the results of that investigation to inform what's the best way to proceed going into an investigation with an already predetermined uh, result is absolutely the wrong way to proceed. Mm. And, you know, Damien English, the minister, junior minister uh, in the Midwest constituency, himself said in the Dáil that, uh, you know, any review over this should include what would it take to make Navin A&E a safe, functioning A&E uh, for the people of Mead. And, you know, it, and, and this has been the key problem mm. right through this whole process, is that on one side we have politicians who are meant to have executive power, and meant to have the authority to deliver decisions, being basically, um, if you like, stopped or uh, frustrated at every angle by a public servants uh, who are meant to carry out the, the, the wishes of, of the, the politicians. In a functioning democracy, that's the way authority should flow. But what we have here is an inverted system. It's a system where basically the HSE is telling the, the, the government, no, this is the way we're going to proceed, uh, and is that, uh, is that war? You know, can, I, can I, I just mention Paul Reid is, is actually resigning, and I said this mm, at the time, mm, and I mm. think that you know, your own investigations have, have highlighted this, is that there is a, a major problem between the, uh, the HSE, the Department of Health, 
uh, and the elected representatives. Well, that's untenable after a period of yeah, time. I, I, can, I, I, can, I can understand why you're coming to that conclusion, uh, but there certainly isn't any actual evidence of that. Just the fact that we know that emails, that there was this correspondence between the CEO and uh, the SecGen in the Department of Health uh, and the timing of them are around the time of that radio interview uh, and indeed the subsequent resignation. You mentioned Damien English. I just want to mention to our listeners uh, that we asked Minister English uh, to discuss this with you on the programme today. The Minister isn't uh, available. Uh, Can I just ask you, though, about statements that are, are made in the Dáil? Uh, when the minister goes into the doll and says we need meaningful discussions to take place between everyone, uh, and he included the community in that, uh, as well as opposition TDs and the clinicians and so on, but between everyone, meaningful discussions should take place. And then that's the last thing you hear from the minister for two months. That was the 21st of June. It's the 22nd of August. There hasn't been anything from the minister since. And indeed, uh, our discussions have been thwarted and really very seriously thwarted on this radio station. This radio station has been thwarted in reporting to the local community about the local hospital by a lack of cooperation from a department and from the HSE who have declined to give us information that should have been forthcoming, let alone requested for Yep, I'll say openly, few media organisations in in the state, if any, uh, have done as much in terms of focusing on um, this particular decision to close the A&E uh, in Navan and focusing on you know the, the proper um, processes, the, the democratic processes and the, and the public servant processes that should be involved in any steps such as this. Um, you like the, the LMFM have actually. Uh, my understanding is was the organisation that brought up the whole idea of the terms of reference in the first place, and here we have uh, when those terms of reference are finally produced. We have um, the the um, the department or, or or the HSE leaking that information to the Irish Times, um, so that the story is broken in that manner. Maybe in which they they can control the breaking of the story in that manner. Uh, and LMSM are, are, are the last to know in terms of um, the communications between the HSE on that particular issue, and, and that's absolutely mm. wrong. No, we, not, we still haven't been given the terms of reference. Well, that's not the way that you know proper, transparent, functional democracy should should operate. You know, th- there should be no favourites. There mm. should be no media organisations. You know, that the, the department works with, and that or that the department is in conflict with all media organisations. All political parties, all citizens should have access to this type of information in clear, fair, uh, even-handed manner. And, you know, it's another example for me in how the HSE is not functioning uh, as it should whatsoever. But I think the key issues here is that unless the minister grabs the HSE by the scruff of the neck, and unless the minister straightens out the function and the system of authority that happens in this country... Well, then we're going to have the same problems that exist uh, over, over and over again. And, you know, it's not just that in Navan uh, Hospital that these problems exist. I believe that the dysfunction in the administration of the HSE had an influence over the million people who are waiting on hospital waiting lists right around the country, over the record waiting times we have uh, in A&Es around the state, over closures such as Nina and Ennis, which led to the overcrowding uh, in, in, in Limerick. Uh, hospitals. So, you know, this is... I know, but can you, have a, can you have trust in any government minister who promises meaningful discussions and then disappears for two months? No, and, 
and, and the other point of this is just to, to let people know as well, the Save Navin Hospital campaign has um, contacted the offices uh, of the two clinicians who are leading uh, the so-called review into Navin Hospital. Um, and we contacted them as soon as we heard that they're they were in charge of this uh, outworking, uh, and we haven't received a response from them whatsoever uh, at, at this stage. Um, and we're, we're worried because we're told that this process is going to take a matter of weeks, uh, and already a week has passed since we have uh, put in that request. Okay, that's Dr. Uh, Michael Connor and Liam Woods. Exactly. So we, we, we've had no response uh, from their offices as of yet. But we are determined and that they will, will, will talk to us. And we are determined uh, not to accept the terms of reference uh, the way that they are laid out, because um, this is a life and death issue mm. for uh, thousands of people in County Mead, and we're not going to stand idly by mm. in terms of allowing the, uh, the HSE to railroad over our needs our, and, and our rights in, in County well, Mead. Well, I want to ask you about the meeting next Tuesday, and I take it these are the issues that will be to the fore. Yeah, so very clearly we want to uh, invite people who are concerned about the A&E in Navan to a public meeting in the Newgrange uh, Hotel on Tuesday the 30th uh, of August at 8pm. And the purpose of that meeting is first of all to update um, the the people of Mead in terms of what's happening. And the people of Mead have been massively engaged in this. That can be seen from well-attended public meetings before and of the thousands of people who have taken to the streets. Secondly, we want to set out very clearly that we are not accepting the HSE's terms of reference or their process. It is a red line for us that the, the, the terms of reference must be broadened to include a future uh, for NAV and A&E. And also, you know, we want to set out uh, a manner in which we can protest within the law peacefully, uh, but more robustly in the future to really hit home with the government that we're not going to accept this. Uh, and if that take, means taking to the streets of Dublin uh, in, in the future, if that means you know stopping traffic uh, in Dublin uh, in the future, uh, we will look at that as well. We've also been in contact with other hospital campaigns around the country, most notably Port Leisha Hospital Campaign, uh, and we are we are interested in talking to other hospital campaigns and other patient groups at this stage to see if we can mobilise. Uh, thousands of people onto the streets of Dublin to really focus on the crisis that's happening within our health service because the crisis in, with Navnaini is just a part of the jigsaw uh, that's affecting hundreds of thousands of people throughout the country. So let a message go out to the HSE loud and clear that the Save Navin Hospital campaign and the people of Mead are not going to be rolled over. Uh, we're not going to be messed with and we're going to mobilise and fight for the future of Navnaini okay. into the future. All right, well, you'll be meeting if people want to meet with you if they want to support your campaign next Tuesday in the New Grange. Uh, before we finish up our, our conversation, just to ask you uh, about a, a completely separate issue, because A2 doesn't have any MLAs in Stormont, uh, but a remarkable poll, I think, for your party over the weekend, a lucid talk poll, which puts you on 2%. Yeah, we're delighted. This is the highest poll rating that we have in the north of Ireland. Uh, we did achieve 1.5% in the assembly elections just gone by. Um, but this poll rating puts us ahead of people for profit and at the same level as the Green Party uh, on this. And uh, it, it, it shows that we have massive, massive potential uh, to win a raft of council seats uh, in the local elections that are happening in the north of Ireland uh, within nine months. Um, we have spent an awful lot of time working to build the organisation in the north. 
Uh, we've selected really good people, really good activists on the ground. We're focusing on the bread and butter uh, issues that are affecting people. And we have been one of the maiden voices calling for a wholesale reform in terms of how the North is, is governed. And I think people are responding to that. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That is Aim2 founder and leader, Padre Tobina, TD for Meath West, who is the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign group. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, it's estimated that there's about 48,000 Ukrainian refugees in uh, this country over the course of uh, the next couple of weeks. Uh, undoubtedly, that number will exceed 50,000 people. It's a lot of people uh, on top uh, of those who are already resident in this country and some of them having to find somewhere to new, new to live. Uh, and as you've uh, been hearing and seeing, I'm sure there really is a crisis for those people who were accommodated in student accommodation as the colleges return. Let's speak to Emma Lane Spollen, who's the National Coordinator of the Ukraine Civil Society Forum. Good morning to you, Emma, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We've had a, a lot of temporary solutions. We're going into the winter and a bad situation looks set to get a whole lot worse. That's certainly the worry. Um, you know, people are now being put into tents, um, and I'm sure they're good quality tents, but it's still tents, and that's fine for a very short period. Um, but we're talking, you know, 83% are women and children, uh, very vulnerable people who've been through huge trauma to get here. Um, and I think we need to try to have a parallel strategy, an emergency response, and we need to now be thinking more of the medium term as winter approaches. And what should we be thinking of for a medium term solution? Well, I think for the first thing, we need to actually appoint, appoint a national lead to actually coordinate this response. Um, I think people felt that it might be over sooner. Uh, the war is not going away, and we really need a crisis, an actual national lead uh, to coordinate across government and local authorities, mm. for one. Uh, I think for the medium term, we need to establish a refugee agency, um, and that would be supporting the, the, the first point. And then Immediately, we need to be pulling on the expertise of the housing agency uh, to develop medium-term planning uh, for accommodation of refugees working with local authorities. I mean, there's no end of derelict and empty properties across the country that could be repurposed. Um, But we need to be more flexible in our thinking and in our resourcing and more responsive to offers from the public uh, in being able to make those offers materialise. You believe that uh, the existing properties uh, could be part of uh, the medium-term solution rather than providing new properties? Absolutely. I mean, we have uh, 60,000 holiday homes in this country. We have 50,000 vacant properties and 110,000 derelict properties. So there's no end of property, let alone the the flats that are above shops that that haven't been used in in decades. We think we need to be a little bit more creative about using the property we already have in the country. And yes, we will need to do new, new bills and that, but for the Ukrainians, they're not looking for a permanent home. They're looking for temporary shelter. Mm. So it's not the same um, as we're looking for our own people when we're trying to give them a, a, a home for life. Right. Um, what about the holiday homes? I mean, people have holiday homes, uh, as you say, there's many thousands of them and they're aware of uh, this crisis, but they haven't offered them. Uh, should they be compelled to give them over to help with this crisis? Well, I, I would actually more be saying we should be giving them a tax credit of you know, 10 or 12 grand for offering 
the use of their holiday home for uh, a year um, and manage that through revenue or, or other. But I think part of the problem is, uh, and I understand it, but the government probably doesn't want to deal with, you know, thousands of landlords. Um, you know, they want a simple solution and the simple solution is hotels. But we know that that has negative uh, outcomes for children. We know that from the children's experience in homelessness and in direct provision. So we don't want to be growing the direct provision system. We need to be thinking differently. I mean, the government committed to ending direct provision in 2024 because of all the negative outcomes on people, the poor mental health and on children in particular. And now we're seeing an extension of that approach, which removes people's agency, their ability to have family life that can't cook for themselves or their children. It's just very debilitating as an approach. Mm. Um, and I understand it's somewhat easier to deliver because you're one, 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 one property, you know, one hotel owner can give maybe 300 beds. But realistically, that's not uh, either good value for money or good for people. And it's certainly not good for the local economy. Yeah, I think the uh, government was offering €120 per person in a hotel, which is very expensive over uh, a long period of time um, when you consider what it would cost to house people if you had somewhere to house them. Yeah, I, I don't think the government is actually offering quite so, so, so good an offer these days. I think it's probably more like 30 to 50, but it still adds up. And it's still more than if you were uh, had a holiday home or a, a property that you wish to rent. You could probably come up with some deal that people would go, this is this is a good to do morally. Uh, I feel I'm contributing, but uh, I'm also not uh, totally out of pocket. Mm, what about these derelict buildings as you put them? I, I'm sure you don't want people to be housed in derelict buildings, uh, but maybe no. buildings that don't come up to normal housing rental standards. But part of it is also is, is repurposing. It can be a small amount of money to bring a property up to, up, up to um, habitable state. And I suppose what we're looking at is seeing a huge amount of money maybe going into hotels that, that's just going to be going to one property, one company, whereas actually that could be going into the community. So you could have a community dividend. Like everything we should try to do is where, where, where most people win out of it. Like Ukrainians are supported and, 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 and uh, given shelter. Uh, local communities benefit from, from hosting and, and looking after the Ukrainians. Um, and we as then as a society will be, will be stronger. But if we go just for the fastest route, just hotels, 90% of the plan, I think that's insane. I think it needs to be flipped. And we should, we should be, yes, 10% maybe hotels, but we should be aiming for 90% uh, alternative accommodation. And because the focus on hotels, Michael, mm. if the numbers continue, that, how many hotels are we going to be talking about? What happens in May when all these people are in hotels and we need to move them out again because of the tourist industry? Are we going to have another mass movement? Would it be it'd be three times the crisis, four times, five times the crisis that we have today um, with moving people uh, out of student accommodation? And I just feel we need to uh, call it now and say we have nine months to plan. Give ourselves nine months to the May next year. We are not in this situation. Uh, and I do think a huge part of this is having a national lead uh, who can actually coordinate across the country and really engage and work closely with local authorities because a huge problem so far has been poor communication uh, and, and lack of forward planning. And I think the crisis we're in today is because of that. Okay. Um, it seems to be having a detrimental uh, impact uh, on the mood of people who are coming here looking for refuge uh, being given somewhere to stay and then moved on. Uh, sometimes 
from uh, student accommodation to Gormanston. I was watching a, a woman on the news yesterday, I think, uh, who's in that situation. And the idea of going from a nice student flat to a tent, I, I found to be appalling. I think, you know, I think for, for the challenges is people have already been somewhere else. They may have been in a hotel in Kerry or Clare. Then they were moved into student accommodation. Now they're being moved into a tent and they don't know where they're going to be ending up next. So all of them will tell you, I'm, I'm so grateful that I have a roof over my head, that I am not uh, facing missiles. Uh, but I'm really, uh, you know, the, you can imagine the stress. You know what I mean? You, mm. you don't know where you're going to be. You probably have young children. One of the ladies on the television there is eight and a half months pregnant, uh, had been look, being looked after by Cork University Hospital. Now she doesn't even know where the hospital is in Dublin. So no one's even told her where that is going to be. And, and this is part of the problem where we're saying we need a more humane approach. It's because these are people and we need to think about their needs and recognise them as people first and recognise that they you know, might need to give birth in two weeks' time and they can't really put that off. And they need to feel safe to give birth. You know, you, you it just so on the one hand I hold the department of children I say listen well done you've done a phenomenal job because this is a, a huge crisis and, and they, they are peddling so hard right so full acknowledgement of the immense work they're doing but on the other side, I'm deeply frustrated because I need someone in government to start thinking much more urgently and ambitiously around the medium term. Mm. There um, does seem to be a firefighting uh, approach to it yeah. uh, rather, rather than a, a planned way of uh, accepting these people into our communities and integrating them uh, on this permanent basis, uh, as you say. And it is a small amount of people relative to what we were told to expect. We were told to expect 100 or possibly 200,000 people yep. at one stage. I mean, could you imagine? <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we are, I think the government is getting their systems in place. Like, there is real improvement over the last few months, okay? Mm. But we don't, you know, these are people's lives and, and, and time is moving on. And, and my frustration is even greater because school starts next week yeah. and we will have thousands of children who do not know where they are going to school, which you can imagine principals across the country are going to be furious about because they're mm. the ones who are going to have to try and make this work. Or if you use the same example of uh, the maternity hospital uh, oh. and someone's in school in Cork and then has moved to Dublin, uh, well, then they have to get a, a new school place, obviously. Oh, yeah. New, new uniforms, yeah. probably different books. You know, I mean, it just, yeah, um, yeah it, it, it's not how you'd want to do it. And I know the government is not how they wish to do it. But with that gap, I just feel we need to put a lot more thought and resources into solving that problem rather than just putting our hands up and saying, listen, this is the best we can do. Mm. For one part of the government, this is the best they can do. But we need another part of the government to step up, whether that's the Department of Taoiseach or Department of Housing are a new agency, but someone needs to step up and think a little bit more about the medium term. Okay, well, there's a, a couple of things, I, I think, Emma, because uh, you said uh, at one stage uh, people weren't expecting to war the war to last this long, but there's this issue of uh, there was this expectation that we would have uh, been required to help more people, maybe 100 or 200,000 people. But there's also the issue of even if the war ends, what are people going to do? Uh, because we see it every day on our television screens uh, how cities are being destroyed and people won't have anywhere to go back to. Uh, if you take the 50,000 people or thereabouts who are in the country at the moment, uh, if the war was to end tomorrow, how many, or is it possible to even guess how many would be able to return back to Ukraine? Well, we, we only on the basis of um, I suppose a survey that was done in early kind of March, so, so it, it is a bit out of date, but at that time, 40% uh, of those who were in Ukraine, had, sorry, who were in Ireland, 
had come from towns which and cities which were now bombed or under Russian control. Okay. So that would mean twenty thousand would stay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they would stay for well, you not possibly, but if your husband and your parents yeah. are back in Ukraine, and also the Ukrainians are extraordinarily national, you know, pride, they'll want to go back and rebuild. So I think there'll be there'll be there'll be um, quite a draw to go back uh, once Zelensky welcomes people back. But we are going to be talking about a, a Marshall Plan for for Ukraine. Mm. We're going to have to rebuild, and um, that's not going to be any time fast, unfortunately. Okay. Well, some challenges remain in place. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program. Thank that's you. Emma Lane Spollen, the national coordinator of uh, the Ukraine Civil Society Forum. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, despite a rescue plan approved in the High Court for Premier Perry Lays, it seems inevitable at this stage that all of the jobs are on the line. The government cannot be left off the hook here. They have to see uh, the company's communication went to the Department uh, of Enterprise, Trade and Employment. I'm sure that department is well aware of the survival plan and they should be asking questions. So to me, the government must insist uh, or investigate uh, what has happened to the plan approved by the court. They must investigate about the investment promised. And I think they must insist that, uh, that the court approved plan should be carried out mm. and insisted upon its implementation. Okay, right. that's Willie Quigley of Unite uh, speaking to me on the 8th of August. Let's uh, speak uh, to local Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, we were speaking with uh, the Unite uh, Trade Union in the last couple of weeks. They still had, hadn't heard back from uh, the department. Questions to the department from LMFM in line with what you heard Willie Quigley say there have not been responded to by the department. What are your thoughts on this and should the government be intervening to make sure that a rescue plan that was approved by the High Court is honoured? Sure. Can you hear Michael? Yes, yes. Yeah, sorry, no, no, it's just that uh, uh, the first thing is that the government is intervening through the chief executive, Leo Clancy, of Enterprise Ireland. And in fact, there was a meeting last week between the directors of the company and Enterprise Ireland to discuss all of those very significant and serious issues. Also, uh, I've been in direct contact and I've spoken with the Tornish. Uh, I've also been in communication with him two or three times since. And I've met uh, with the directors of the company as well to discuss all of the outstanding issues. Now, as regards your questions from LMFM, I wasn't aware that they hadn't been answered, but I'll raise that straight away directly with the Tarnish's office. Um, but I do know that uh, the T-shirt or the Tarnish rather has assured me the, the letters that I spoke to him about were sent to him Monday, of, Friday of, of the week before last, excuse me, <coughs> and on Monday last, and they are being replied to. So, mm. But I will take up those other issues. The key point is that the cost of energy, as we all know, particularly of gas, yeah. has risen exponentially. So there's no way, uh, you know, the company <coughs> or the state, you know, could continue to pay 
demands that are being made for gas under the present circumstances. Okay, but there was to be this investment in the plant uh, for yes, of for, for precisely that purpose to switch <clears throat> to switch away from gas to renewable yes. energy, uh, and that switch over was uh, to be done over a period of eighteen months. Uh, and jobs where some people were to be let go and jobs were to be kept, and that's what was Absolutely. approved by the High Court. So why are people <clears throat> now being told? I mean, this couldn't have come as any great surprise. A May the invasion of Ukraine was on the 24th of February and we've seen prices grow and uh, I mean we all know that they're going to get an awful lot more expensive again going into the winter Uh, so there couldn't have been any great surprise in uh, the inflation of energy prices well, there is actually, Michael, because they've risen so much. Uh, like you're paying four, five, six, seven, eight times the cost of gas. And that's the big problem, not just for primary paraclades, but for everybody who's listening, who uses gas. The price has gone through the roof. And um, <clears throat> that's, that's the problem. But the point that you make about changing the type of fuel used uh, I spoke to the company about that. Excuse me, I'm just slightly horse-fired. Yes, uh, take your time. <laughs> uh, the, the issue there is that the planning process, uh, they apparently what the company told me, that they've been advised that they will need planning permission for the physical change and they will also need a license from the EPA. Now, they were on the belief up until Friday when I was speaking to them uh, that you couldn't proceed with the EPA licence until you had the planning permission and therefore the timeline will be a minimum of probably two years. But since then I've spoken to the EPA. I've also written them for confirmation of what they said to me. But what they said to me on Friday and I've asked directly in the letter to respond in writing to me on it is that there can be a parallel process. In other words, if they do need planning and there's some doubt as from their technical advisors that they do need planning, they apply to the county council and at the same time they apply to the EPA for the licence to change their emissions, uh, which would be a very good thing because what they want to do is reduce their carbon footprint. Uh, but the only catch in it is that until the planning permission actually issues, the EPA can't grant the licence. But they can issue an intention to grant a licence. So the company, if they do apply, would be sure of what the outcome would be, whether it would be a yes or a no, uh, which obviously it will have to be a yes because uh, the key government policy is to reduce our carbon emissions. And that is exactly what primary parties want to do. And uh, that would be a big boon to the people in the area because we won't have the you know, the, the dreadful issues that have arisen in the past with Premier, as you well know and I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of good things can happen, provided, uh, provided obviously, uh, that all can be done. And the difficulty is what happens in the meantime yeah. with, with the cost of well, energy. So that's the conundrum. Well, what happens, what happens in the meantime with the existing jobs? Well, that, that's the key point. So <clears throat> what the company said to me, was that they've issued a statutory, there's a statutory period, I think, of 30 days. So all of the workers there, unfortunately and sadly, and many of them with over 30, 35, 36, 37 years service, they're all extremely worried and concerned. And I support their concerns and their worries. That 30 days will run out uh, in the middle of next month, isn't it? It What they said to me at my meeting, excuse me, Mm. with them was that 
you know, that they weren't, you know, they weren't absolutely categoric that that deadline would be the deadline. Mm. Uh, so, in other words, there is room for discussions, and they are in discussions. Like the chief executive of Enterprise Ireland, Leo Clancy, has mm. met with them. Um, the the, the trade unions, level. the trade Pardon? unions, the trade unions wrote to the Tánaiste uh, and uh, his officials asking uh, for the government to consider state aid. Uh, because of the cost of gas. Uh, how uh, has that been looked on? Well, I, I gave the trade unions the answer to that last week when I met them, or so, some of the workers and, and the trade unions separately. Uh, and the answer is there is state aid, uh, and that on the 14th of August, the government got the consent of the European Union to have a fund of €200 million Euros for such state aid. But the problem is, Michael, that whatever this, whatever system will be in place won't be in place for some time. And that's the difficulty. So what the Tarnished has said in his letter to me, and I think you may have a copy of it, is, is that in the meantime, any possible help that can be given under present uh, aids or support... Mm. It seems as though we've lost the line there with uh, Fergus O'Dowd. Uh, we'll return to that I- issue in uh, the coming days, no doubt. Uh, but uh, it does appear as though uh, the jobs are coming to the end of the line. The longer term picture, I suppose, will uh, become known over a period of time. But uh, apologies to you for um, the dropout in the line. And our, our thanks uh, to Finnegale TD, Fergus O'Dowd. Michael Reed on LMFM. We lost Fergus O'Dowd uh, there before the headlines, uh, but he he was telling us about the letter that he received uh, from uh, the Thánaiste, Leo Bradker. And in that letter, the Thánaiste writes to Fergus O'Dowd saying that department officials are currently developing special loans and grants to support companies facing liquidity and energy cost challenges, such as Premier Periglase. As with all state aid under the temporary crisis framework prior approval from the Commission is required and that was granted as Fergus said on the 11th of August following a notification from the Department at the end of June. It will be later this year before the scheme can be started and it is not possible to give an exact start date at this point. The scheme will not open to all firms affected by high energy prices. It will be targeted at those that are vulnerable but viable and have a credible survival and adaptation plan. Uh, So (laughs) what all of that means, I think time will tell. Uh, But perhaps uh, there is some hope uh, for the jobs uh, as a result of it being possible, uh, to some degree at least, uh, to support the company uh, directly from uh, state coffers. Now, uh, to some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, today, Mary in touch with us saying she can't understand why or where the government seems to think they're going to be able to house all of the refugees that are coming into the country. There aren't enough houses for people who are already here, let alone an extra 50,000 people, both the native Irish and other refugees who have Ireland, uh, who have been in Ireland and have made this country their home in recent years. Mary says she believes in giving a safe haven to those in need. Uh, but we need to be responsible about how we go to do this. Why bring people here when we have nowhere to house them or even worse still 
uh, when we expect them to move around constantly without giving them a chance to put down roots anywhere. Thanks uh, indeed, uh, Mary, for that. A uh, couple of people uh, in touch uh, about uh, the refugee situation. I think that there might be a slight change in the mood, unfortunately. I think most of us are, are very supportive of the idea of Ukrainians having the opportunity to get out of the country for fear of their lives. And when you see uh, the way the buildings are are destroyed, you think, well, uh, thank God nobody was in them if that was the case. Or if you think of the thousands that are dead, you can understand why people are running and fleeing and getting away as quickly as they can so that they're not amongst uh, those listed as uh, deceased uh, as a result of this terrible, terrible war. And I, I think there's been this uh, great uh, feeling of empathy uh, and indeed charity and support and um, the idea of being there uh, at a time of need. Uh, but uh, just judging by some of the comments now uh, coming from uh, people this morning, uh, that may be changing somewhat slightly. We won't read those comments uh, for obvious reasons on the programme. wanted to bring to your attention today uh, an article in uh, the Daily Mail uh, which features comments uh, from Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreehan, uh, who lives locally, uh, a local to these parts, uh, and uh, somebody who has been making headlines uh, in recent times. You remember the F Sinn Féin and F Fine Gael and We Are FF and all of that stuff uh, reported uh, from what was supposed to be a private meeting of backbenchers and senators not too long ago. Uh, well, if you remember back to then, Erin McGreen was also saying we need to go after Fine Gael. And maybe that's what she's doing in this article in the Daily Mail today. Uh, it's uh, Sharon McGowan who's reporting on this. And she says a Fianna Fáil senator said her party is working to fix the inequities in the housing crisis after Tanish Lee of Radker said government plans to tackle it weren't working fast enough. Uh, um... Isn't it a Fianna Fáil minister uh, who looks after housing? <laughs> I don't know. We, uh, you, you may remember the FFFFFFF stuff uh, and Erin McGreen wasn't available to us then. Uh, unfortunately, Erin McGreen isn't available to us uh, this morning. Uh, but if Erin McGreen was here this morning, we'd be saying, why are you uh, giving out about the housing crisis when it's a, a Fianna Fáil minister who's in charge of housing? Uh, she... The Tonisha did say something about a review. And speaking to the Daily Mail, Erin McGreehan said, I'm not sure what the Tonisha means by reviewing the government's housing policy. This policy has been agreed by the three government parties. It has been budgeted for, legislated for, and the Tonisha admits it is working. I, I would agree a social contract was broken. Fianna Fáil has been in government for two years now after a 10-year period of Fine Gael in power. I believe Fianna Fáil's job is to fix the inequities that were created over those 10 years. We are working well on those issues. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, unfortunately, Erin McGreen isn't available this morning, but if she was, we would have asked... Uh, the senator about Fianna Fáil's record in government when they stopped building social housing, uh, which I think a lot of uh, commentators uh, and experts in the field would say has fed into this problem that we're living with today. Uh, another um, Fianna Fáil person in the papers today is Dermot Ahern, former TD for County Louth and former minister. He had many portfolios and he, he writes an opinion uh, piece in the Daily Mail uh, and it's coincidental that it's from that paper today as well. Uh, but I, I thought it was interesting uh, because uh, it's a, a message to 
his party members. I'm not sure if the idea of Aaron McGreen uh, coming out and criticising Fine Gael is what Dermot Ahern is writing about, but he's talking about the summer and how politicians should be out talking and giving good news stories. Uh, it's an opportunity, and he looks at uh, Bertie Ahern's strategy, and he writes in the paper today that politically, summer is a downtime for our TDs and senators. Most of the opposition tend to lie low, taking a much-needed break, but the government apparent, uh, apparatus normally keeps ticking over, using the relatively quiet period to make announcements of initiatives to drive the agenda. This is what you call spin. This is uh, when uh, they're... Uh, feeding us with information as such. Bertie Ahern, Dermot Ahern says in, in the paper today, Bertie Ahern's Taoiseach was a past master at media coordination. He constantly drummed into his cabinet ministers that we should each have a range of new policy announcements ready to roll out on quiet news days over the summer. Nothing better than to have the daily news dominated by a good news story. Indeed, Bertie insisted that the government press office coordinate the availability of ministers over the summer in such a way that hardly a day would go by without some new policy being rolled out to grab the headlines. Bertie maintained that if the government did not lead the agenda, some other negative news stories would dominate the airwaves. Each minister was asked about their holiday plans so as to ensure that at least two were available daily to do interviews to deal with any particular issue or to make an announcement of some new initiative. The media tended to have a voracious appetite for this type of soft news over the quiet summer months. With the doll and Shannon in recess they were scratching around for stories of course there'll always be negative news for the government to deal with but the feeling was that it, it does help if there's some good news to balance that agenda. In recent years I've noticed that there seems to have been a decline in this type of media manipulation by those in power. Ministers have only tended to be on our airwaves if they were doorstepped at a public event. This year is no exception. The government seems to be lurching from crisis to crisis whether it be Minister Robert Troy's disclosure emissions and on Borplano travails to name a few generally ministers have tended to keep their heads down a possible expect, ex, exception to this trend is Justice Minister Helen McEntee who has been out very often launching new pieces of legislation and that is very true I, I wanted to read that to you um, well because of how Aaron McGreen has been doing the FFFFFFFF stuff and speaking about Fine Gael because when she did the FFFFFF stuff first of all she said we need to get out there and go against Fine Gael Unfortunately, she isn't available to us today. But I was also thinking about uh, the story in Navin about the hospital and Our Lady's Hospital. And I would imagine as a local resident, Dermot O'Hearn listens to this programme on occasion, and I'd say he's been wondering why is it that Stephen Donnelly has not been speaking to the media and why is it that nobody else has been speaking to the media? He's heard Helen McEntee, of course, speaking to the media about the hospital and all of these other issues uh, that are going on. But I, I was wondering if that was feeding into the thinking of uh, the former minister. God knows. God knows. Uh, but there certainly uh, is a, an absence of ministers. Uh, uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, not a word out of uh, Stephen Donnelly in the last two months. Tony in County Louth has uh, been texting us uh, this morning. Thanks for your message, Tony. He says, 
I'm trying once more to have this question broadcast which has failed in the past. Can you explain why a news piece on RTE last night showed Ukrainians in Kyiv strolling the streets like tourists in preparation for Independence Day and the war exhibits not appearing to have a care in the world or apparently under no threat and still millions are choosing to come into Europe and to countries like our own who have no accommodation uh, for people here uh, much less thousands of refugees. Is it necessary for so many to leave their own borders when the majority of the country is in no danger whatsoever? Is the situation being used by people who would have intended to come to Western Europe anyway before this war at all? I don't think so, Tony. And I, I think, you've, uh, yeah, in fairness, you've sent that message uh, to us a few times. We didn't read it out uh, just because of shortage of time on the programme. Uh, but I, I think the reason is that nowhere in Ukraine is safe. I mean, it's as simple as that. Uh, the Russians um, have launched an offensive against Ukraine. And even what might seem to be the safest corner of the country uh, may not be tomorrow because... Uh, there is uh, this Russian offensive. I, I imagine that's the reason why people are, are leaving. And many of them are leaving from the cities and uh, parts of uh, the country that we see being bombarded on a, a daily basis. I don't know if uh, that answers your question, but thank you indeed for asking it. And uh, I hope uh, uh, that uh, is uh, the outcome that you were looking for, that it would be read and see what other people uh, might think of it. Uh, and if they do want to share their thoughts with us, uh, we'd love to hear from them as always. But thank you uh, for your text at the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, I don't know if it's uh, 20 years uh, or, or how long Eamon No Party has uh, been texting uh, the programme, but I, I think it's probably 20 years since I first read a message from Eamon No Party on the programme. And I can't tell you exactly what Eamon No Party said in his message today, but I think I probably gave him a, a bit of a, a fright uh, by mentioning Dermot Ahern's name. Uh, I think Eamon uh, would understand why I'm not reading out his message, uh, but I think he probably would agree uh, that I'm not too far off uh, the truth uh, when I said that. Uh, and it reminded me as well, uh, because I was talking about Dermot Ahern, former government minister uh, and local TD in Louth, and how he might have been tuned into how the stuff about the hospital in Navin is panning out. Uh, and I know that Eamon O'Party would have uh, texted the programme many times uh, during uh, the threat that hung over the Louth County Hospital uh, and eventually how that emergency department was closed. And I'm sure he'll remember Minister Hearn, who was out, uh, as he puts it in the paper today, uh, talking about that situation so many times back then uh, and indeed uh, made sure that the Minister of the Day, Mary Harney, was on this radio programme talking about it as well and we would have given as much coverage to the hospital in Dundalk as we have given to the one this time around in Navan. They're very, very similar stories, it would seem, with big marches and lots of people protesting and so on. Uh, just some other comments uh, while we're on that subject uh, because Colin was in touch with us about the hospital in Navin, and he says he can't believe that Stephen Donnelly still hasn't made himself available to come on the show about uh, the hospital. It's a joke at this stage, he says. Colm says it's obviously not going to be a pleasant conversation to have, but the minister is only making things harder for himself by dragging it out as long as he has. Uh, Tommy says he thinks we need to put a cap on the number of people who are being allowed into the country until we get the current housing crisis under control. It's not fair to expect people who are seeking refuge to sleep on floors 
at the airport or in other state buildings or to be willing to be moved around constantly the way it seems to be happening now. Surely a temporary cap would help ease the pressure and give the authorities a chance to get those who have already arrived here settled and into safe living conditions. Thanks, uh, Tommy, uh, for sharing your thoughts with us uh, this morning and anybody else who has been in touch with us. Now, a lot of us are very concerned, speaking of uh, what we're thinking about, uh, at the idea that the lights might go off uh, going into the winter. There's been a a lot of amber alerts uh, recently and we're told uh, that in order to stop power cuts, uh, they're going to uh, place tariffs uh, on electricity that's used between 5 and 7 in the evening. Uh, Whether that is applied to households or not, is not known at uh, this stage, but it is certainly a concern, I think, for a lot of people. Let's uh, speak to Anne Dempsey, communications manager and training facilitator with the Senior Helpline and Third Age Ireland. Good morning, Anne, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. It looks like uh, there's a, a, a lot of, of uh, things that were challenges we're going to have to face into going into the winter. Uh, I'm not sure... Uh, that this is one that people would have thought of. We were all very worried about affording the the cost of electricity, but we may not have the lights to switch on. Exactly. Michael, thank you. Good morning to you. We've been thinking about this, obviously, as well, Michael, given our uh, constituency of older callers. And we surveyed our callers in recent weeks because we want to look towards all the various problems that we'll be facing during the coming winter. And we asked them what their kind of fears and concerns were. And there was certainly something around about outages and there wouldn't be the power. But there was more. it was more about even in the midst of the hot weather, the cost of what it might be like for people if they found themselves without heat or or light or that, mm. and the cost of food as well. So they were the main things coming up. And they all, the other piece, because of the fears and worries, there's a new concern on, on our part for the mental health of some of our older callers, who have all, as you and I have talked for ages, been confined with COVID, some of them. So real issues around anxiety, depression, um, I, I won't go so far as to say suicide ideation, Michael, because mm. that's too dramatic and too, you don't want to have any crisis, but certainly feeling of helplessness and hopelessness coming through, and real worries about the future. What will we do? Yeah, well, sitting in a dark house with no heat on uh, wouldn't help with that, uh, and uh, if we're to pay tariffs uh, and be encouraged to use electricity I suppose it's for the right reason, Uh, but it's the worst time of the day, isn't it, between five and seven in the evening? Very, very much so. Um, I suppose we were thinking, and again, we're going to put together a kind of a whole package of support for our callers. There are all kinds of ideas and suggestions, big and small, that might be able to help them. Mm. And one very obvious thing would be that if people are working, Michael, they're coming home, there's very little option but to kind of begin cooking and, and eating then. But some of our callers, as you would know, they're at home during the day. And even though they mightn't traditionally be doing it, they would have the scope of having their main meal in the middle of the day mm. if they choose to do that. Now, it's supposed to be much better for you. Do you know that? Well, I do. Mm. everybody says that. Yeah. What do they say? Be a prince in the morning with your food and a pauper in the evening. So you eat most at the beginning of the day. But again, it's about... the other. I suppose the other side is sometimes food is such a comfort that people look forward to their kind of mm. cooking their evening meal and all of that. But it, we're, these are some of the issues we're going to be discussing with our callers. Yeah. 
big and small ways of making things easier for themselves. Okay, but I mean, I suppose most of us have our, our dinner in the evening and watch the telly and that sort of thing yeah. around that time. Yeah, um, yeah, you, 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 yeah. You dread to think, but the, I mean, they're inconveniences, uh, but the, the, it's the likes of heat, uh, if you need electricity light. to heat, light, uh, and then medical aids as well. All of that, because medical appliances, sometimes you've no choice when you do use them, you know. Mm. Um, our fellow organisation, Age Action, has been calculating the kind of current cost of all of this, with the projected cost, Michael. And they say that older people in real sense will lose something like 10% of their spending power by the end of this year. Mm. And again, because they're unwaged people, they'll be unable or unlikely to be able to make this up easily. So they're suggesting, and hopefully it's not pie in the sky, but they're suggesting that the state patient pension should increase by at least 23 euro mm. in the forthcoming budget. It seems as though you'll be lucky to get 15. Well, exactly. Well, I mean, 15 will be far better than the five people have been getting. And, you know, again, we'd be talking about if we do get 15, let's discuss how we can maximise that and make up the difference. So, as I say, we're going to be as practical as possible with our callers and come up with lots of kind of ideas with them and in discussion with them. Everybody's going to be watching the budget very close. I think think it's going to be the closest watch budget since 2008. People are very worried. And if there's any doubt about that, the front page of the Daily Mail today tells its own story because the number of people in the workplace who are over the age of 65 has grown from 88,500 to 100,500 people, a 13.5% increase. Undoubtedly, people are looking for work so that they'll be able to cope with these increases. People are, 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 are not retiring, are coming back to work, are doing all they can. I don't know, I don't think you and I discussed this, Michael, but a few years ago, we ran, Third Age ran a programme called Navigating Your Work Future. And it was about this very subject about older people going back to work and the kind of upskilling they might need doing. And we held a series of days around the country which were very, very successful. Seems to me their time might be coming again because. What we discovered was a lot of older people who'd kind of got a job years ago, you know, and they'd just gone in and they had their interview and they were in work all their lives. And they didn't know about some of the new ways you need, like networking and LinkedIn and how to target your CV, all those things that young people now know. And it was very, very helpful to some older people. Mm. You were talking about that age action uh, calculation. Yeah. And they said that if you had a £1,000 to go to the shops with in January, it it would be the equivalent of having just 900 euro by yeah. the time you get to December because your spending power will have decreased. They're saying you need 23 euro of an increase on the state pension to stand still. Yeah. Uh, you won't have any extra spending power, but you'll be still able to buy what you have been buying up to now. So if that's 15 or less, people are going to be impoverished. Well, this is it. I mean, it's looking very lean and very, very worrying, which is why people are getting desperately anxious about it and help feeling people are feeling helpless what can they do this is bigger than them this is outside their control so as i say we're meeting an awful lot of worry on the line and we're trying to be as reassuring as possible without being pie in the sky and we're looking at big ways and little ways of helping people so that's going to be our work over the next while michael as practical and helpful as possible yeah okay well it's uh, about a a month uh, out to Mm. the budget uh, and uh, 
sure people are, are in touch with you about uh, many different things, uh, but you're concerned, you say, about their mental health most of all. Uh, and if people are feeling down in the dumps over these things, it's very hard to lift yourself up because the future really doesn't look any brighter. It looks worse, if anything. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, people are talking to us about all their own stratagems. And some people are kind of talking that they're going to spend more time in the library in heated places. They're going to go out and about. They're going to visit friends and invite friends in. They're going to even, when I say going to even volunteer, I don't mean to take mm. away from the value of that. But they're going to, if somebody said to me, like, if I'm volunteering and I'll be kind of, I'll be doing something worthwhile and I'll be in a warm place. Mm. So it's kind of, I think people have to go and have to be as creative as possible and as optimistic as possible and to join forces as much as possible, see how we can help one another. Because it's a, it's a very, we haven't had a time like this for a long time. Sure mm. we haven't. No, We're no. A kind of a perfect storm coming together. Yeah, well, probably 15 years since uh, we had yeah. this level of concern. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, Third Age runs the senior line. You open the lines uh, for people to call you if they want to talk to you about any of these issues or something Anything else that's going on in their lives, um, whether they just want to chat to somebody or whatever it is. Uh, the phone lines open at 10 in the morning and they close then at 10 in the evening. Uh, and it's a group of volunteers who are all older people who answer the calls, I think, Anne. Yeah, and we're, we're going to offer our, our volunteers, they're currently being offered new training to deal with these new issues with with. Uh, callers, Michael, so we're having meetings around Dublin with small groups of volunteers for training and it's the only way of coming together as well because we haven't been able to meet face to face for some time. Very good. So again, we're going to be very, very focused and very, very practical. Okay, well if people want to call the senior line, uh, the line's open at 10 o'clock in the morning, they close at 10 o'clock in the evening and the number is 1-800-80-45-91 That's 1-800-80-45-91 And thank you as always for joining us on the programme today. That's Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with uh, the Senior Helpline, which is run by Third Age Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Electric Picnic must be the biggest music festival in uh, the country. Certainly must be the longest running festival in uh, the country. And there's many people who are counting down the days uh, to this year's festival in Stradbally when it gets underway on Friday week. As uh, part of the services uh, to concert goers at Electric Picnic uh, this year, the HSE is going to put in place a pilot drugs analysis programme. Let's uh, speak to People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny. A very good morning to you, Gino, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, has this ever been done in this country before? No, as far as I know, Michael, it has never been done. There's been kind of talks about it. Uh, but it's never been implemented. Um, and obviously this is kind of welcome that, you know, the HSE are doing this along with kind of in, in conjunction with kind of the organisers of the festival. Mm. So it's a kind of, it's a welcome step. Um, but it, it probably, sh- in my opinion, it would probably need to go much further than than kind of the policy at the moment. Because the policy at the moment is kind of what would be termed as a back of house mm. Um, system. So essentially it means that if somebody has a substance and they get it into the festival uh, and they want to surrender it, then they can do that anonymously. Um, and obviously that substance then is tested for anomalies or whatever, you know. Um, and then, you know, the H that's in real time. There's obviously another system 
which I would probably advocate for, is a, it's called the front of house system. So essentially is somebody that has a substance on them, um, it's, uh, the analysis is given in real time with the person and the kind of the supervisor, you know, at, yeah. at, at, at the tent, and that kind of substance is tested there and then for any impurities. And then that substance is, which is the most important thing, well, one of the most important things think, is that something then is given back to the person for prosecution. Right. Uh, what they're going to do at Electric Picnic is different. They're not going to give the drugs back to people, is it? No. Why, no. why, why, why would people give them the drugs to test? Is, is, I know. I know. I know. That's, I, I uh, presume they paid a lot of money for them and uh, they were intending to use them. And we're talking about all adults who go to the Electric Picnic uh, and uh, there'll be very few surprises amongst them. Is it If there's a surprise, if they take something and they're totally off their head and think there was something wrong with that, and then they might surrender it? Possibly. Um, and then some, in some cases, uh, some of the substance will be um, confiscated from people coming into the festival. Mm. And then some of that could be tested as well. So, because uh, I, I understand, like, how many people are actually going to go into a festival and then, you know, and then I surrender a substance that they may have on them. I think may, there may be kind of a few cases of that, but my guess is that it would be drugs that have been confiscated, they will be tested, and, you know, then a kind of a directive goes out to say, look at this batch of whatever, you know, this point kind of, it's contaminated or so forth, and that kind mm-hmm. of message goes out. So it's a, it's a it's a it's a welcome step yeah. uh, in relation to harm reduction. Okay, uh, but I think we need to go much further than you know the back back of house system. And in your other European countries, uh, the system of which is termed the front of house system, where actually the substances are, are tested and then given back to the person. That's a, to me that's a better system of harm reduction mm. and kind of saving lives and so forth. But you couldn't expect it as things stand, could you? Because you'd be asking the guardie to look at people uh, breaking the law in front of them and look the other way. Yeah. Well, that's essentially... I mean, that's essentially what would happen mm. if it was a front-of-house system, which I would advocate for. And I think eventually that will happen. If the drugs uh, are contaminated... I mean, I, I, I take it there's a lot of contamination in, in uh, stuff that's produced illegally like this. Uh, what, what, what kind of things would you expect to be contaminating the drugs? Well, drugs such as cocaine, such as um, ecstasy, um, you know, ketamine, these are drugs that, you know, people will use at festivals, whether we like it or not. So, um, and these drugs are almost impossible to detect somebody bringing into a festival. You know, I mean, you're just not going to be able to stop people bringing in drugs into a festival, no matter what festival it is. A lot of people won't use drugs, actually, at festivals and so forth, but some people will. Um so in that case, you know, then drugs then can be kind of contaminated by other substances that should not be in that substance that people are going to take, mm. which could lead to kind of overdose, could lead to kind of very people being very, very ill. Um, but I think a system where people, are, you know, if people want, if they bring a substance in and it's tested, um, I know in a system in Britain where actually it is tested, the substance is tested and actually the person is given some advice in relation to, well look, if you use this substance with that substance it's going to be not very, very good for your health mm. you know, and you're going to be quite ill afterwards so people take that advice on board and I think that is a much, much better system uh, than we have at the moment but it is welcome um, in relation to HSE, kind of overall national drugs policy in relation to 
harm reduction. But I think, you know, Michael, I've said this on the show many, many times. I think we need to go much, much, much further than what is happening at the moment. We need to be completely radical to um, harm reduction and how we kind of deal with the issue around kind of uh, prohibition and you know, criminalising people just doesn't work. And I think people, I think governments are finally copping on that we need to do the 45 years of damage in relation to yeah. what's happening around the misuse of drugs yeah. and all the kind of all the issues of that. I think we need to reverse that, and I think that will happen over the next 10 years, hopefully. You said some people will be using drugs and some people won't be using drugs uh, at Electric Picnic, uh, but there or anywhere else, uh, is it possible uh, to estimate how many people choose to use drugs? Because to some degree, this is a recognition, is it not, uh, that people are using drugs and because they're illegal, they could be dangerous to their health. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, a health lab approach has recognised that drugs are just not going to go away. They're a kind of factor of life. Mm. And people will use drugs. And you hear things like strychnine being put in drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you hear a flower being put in drugs to pad it out uh, so that they yeah. uh, can make more money. But uh, you hear of all sorts of things that are put in. All sorts of contaminants mm. that go yeah. into uh, drugs that where somebody has bought a substance and it's not even, it's nothing... Even even the substance that they bought is absolutely nothing. Uh, the, the ingredients that they were meant to buy is absolutely nothing. You know mm. that's relative to what they were thought were going to take, and it could be completely different. Um, and and that would obviously have a huge kind of detrimental effect mm. on the health. So and it's uh, rare, but you hear you hear of drugs uh, on occasion uh, that end up killing people, and you'll hear of a, a yeah. number of deaths until the police forces. Uh, uh, managed to get all, all of the batch back or whatever because of what was yeah. put into it. Uh, yeah. Should this type of testing take place elsewhere? Um, I mean, yeah. this is a starting. They say it's a pilot. Uh, should there be more of it? I think so. Michael, I think so. I think, it, you know, obviously it depends on the festival um, and the organisers of the festival. Um, but I think it should be kind of commonplace in relation to, you know, musical festivals um, that go on. Mm. And some people will not choose to kind of, you know, to avail of that service, whether it's front house, back house, whatever, you know, they or ever want to do their own thing. But I think, you know, having a kind of grown up discussion about drug use at concerts, because when you go to a concert, some of you are in a, in inhibitions, sometimes go out the door mm. and you will probably drink more. Now, that this is not kind of relevant to everybody, but obviously you'll probably do, you'll probably experiment, especially particularly around young people, might experiment with the drugs. So the, I think it's important to, to kind of give them advice if they are going to take uh, certain drugs, to give them advice and look at, these are the effects that this will have on you. If you're going to use drugs, um, you know, and the HSE will even kind of say this, that if you're going to use you know, any substance, mm. you know, take it in very, very small amounts first. Uh, because obviously, what can happen is that, and you know, this is, it does happen. Somebody can overdose on a small amount of illegal substance and can end up very, very ill or worse, uh, dead. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And that's that's the the, the real fear uh, because of the drugs being contaminated. The HSE yeah. does stress that the best thing to do is to avoid drugs at all times. But if you take them, they will offer that sort of advice to you. That's why they're setting up uh, this. Uh, 
program at the electric picnic, uh, I suppose, because they know the people, rather than letting on uh, that nobody's taking drugs, they know the people are taking drugs uh, and they're offering to test them in case there are serious problems like that. Uh, you're suggesting that drugs should be made available, that cannabis certainly should be made available to people and there should be no risk of contamination and you're to bring legislation to the doll that would legalise cannabis. I, I am, Michael, in September when obviously the doll reconvenes, so it will be uh, bring forward uh, a bill in relation to amending the, dr- uh, the Misuse of Drugs Act in relation to for cannabis for personal use. So somebody that, you know, will have in their possession a certain amount of cannabis can never be prosecuted. Um, and that's a, I think that's a better system um, of decriminalisation, you know, legalisation, regulation. Um, and I think other countries... You know, particularly in Germany, I think in the next 18 months, they will actually have a regulated framework of uh, cannabis for, for adult use. Um, so that's, a, to me, Michael, as I said many times in this show, it's a better system than we have at the moment. Uh, the system of prohibition, the system of kind of criminalising people mm. for, for cannabis use do, do, doesn't work. But de- decriminalising it won't take away the contaminated products, will it? No, no. Then you have to see, I mean, decriminalisation is a kind of halfway house. Regulation is a kind of a, a system that's kind of where somebody, you know, can legally buy cannabis in a dispensary, uh, you know, in, a, in like, like something like Canada, some states in the United States. Mm. So this is kind of decriminalising the person. Mm. But also in some ways, you know, somebody that can have, you know, a certain amount of cannabis on them without being criminalised. Mm. But it, it, it. if you legalise it, it would probably have the type of sticker on it that you see on uh, a can of beans or whatever, uh, best before yeah, dates yeah, and that course. sort of thing. Like, um, yeah, and and to give, me that's a better system. Mm. If people want to use cannabis, that's entirely up to their own business, uh, then they should be able to uh, consume it and buy it without prosecution. Mm. And when they buy it, they know exactly, exactly what's in that substance. Okay. You know, um, and that's a, to me, that's a much better system that we have now. Mm. Uh, is it inevitable that uh, your bill will fail? Uh, no, Michael, I think it's uh, the beginning of a, a kind of a conversation that we should have had had a long time ago. And, you know, like in the last 10 years, there's been huge kind of, you know I mean, mm. social people in this country for the better, I think, mm. related to same-sex marriage in relation to a woman's right to choose. Um, I believe that we need to have, uh, you know, ready kind of... But we, we have had this conversation. We've been having it from the 60s or whatever, but I mean, certainly in recent years, uh, it's not the first bill that will go to the doll looking to uh, look on cannabis differently, whether it's legalise it or decriminalise it or whatever. Yeah. No, it won't be, it won't be, it won't be the first one. It won't be the last. But this is a process that starts a kind of a, a debate Mm. that how how we're doing things wrong and trying to fix them. And I believe that by kind of regulating something uh, makes it, I think it makes it better. It's not perfect by many means, Michael. There's an absolute terrible dark side to drugs in not only in Ireland, but across the world. But I think governments uh, and society has, I think, has turned, I hopefully have torn a corner to say, look, we can't continue on criminalising people. It doesn't work. Because if it did work, Michael, you know, the prevalence of drugs would be less. You know, 70% of all people that are in Irish prisons are in uh, for uh, drug offences on on the whole spectrum. Really? Yeah, 70%. In Mountjoy Prison, 85% of prisoners in Mountjoy Prison 
are there for drug offence. Really? I would never knew that. No, it's it's Mm. shocking. It's literally shocking, right? Mm. Now, obviously, that's the broad spectrum of distribution, all that kind of, the whole network. But we have a system, basically a kind of a penal system to basically keep criminalising people. And again, there's a whole spectrum of people in that kind of myriad of drug kind of sale. Pretty unsavoury characters as well. But the whole prison, the three quarters of the prison system in Ireland is to incarcerate people that are in the drug industry. Okay. Yeah. To yeah. me, that doesn't work. To me, okay. it's, 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 yeah. All right. Well, I suppose the conversation has uh, begun. We'll see what people have to say and we'll hear a lot more uh, when you bring that legislation to the doll in you. September. Thank you indeed. Gino Kenny, people before Profit TD for Dublin Midwest. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Times report said today that just over one third of the annual budget for traveller specific accommodation has been spent this year. Seven local authorities have yet to draw down any funds. One of those is County Louth. Let's speak to Labour Party councillor Michelle Hall, who is the mayor of Drogheda. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, that's um, what do you make of that? Yeah, it seems a bit disappointing um, that, considering the the numbers of homeless people in um, in the Loud area and also the number of people on our social housing list is very very high. That uh, um, you know we can assume that there is a lot of people that identify as travellers and Roma Gypsies that are on that waiting list, um, and to think that that money hasn't been allocated as yet. Is a bit disappointing. I have requested um, information to see is there money being spent, but I haven't. Um, I haven't received that as yes. And um, so we, what are we in now? August, um, nearly September. So we've got four months left of the year that uh, would like to see that that money is being spent. Though. Yeah, um, it's not a, a new problem. Uh, this is something that's going on for years, isn't it? I don't mean specifically yeah. in Louth, across the country. Uh, it's, yeah, it's embarrassing it has, this yeah. time around for health, no doubt. But uh, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of speculation, uh, and uh, I suppose s- some of it uh, will prove to be correct. Uh, but there's definitely a problem when it comes to housing travellers. Uh, well, one of the problems is uh, a lot of people don't want to identify as travellers. So we actually have a lot of hidden um, people that you know already. Um, uh, there, there's an issue about travelling um, or housing travellers, but then also people who don't want to identify in case they're discriminated against. Um, so that compounds the issue then as well. Um, but in Loud, I suppose, uh, in Drogheda specifically, like we don't have a halting site. Um, there's a halting site in North Loud. Mm. Um, and uh, we've no transitional halting sites either. And there's also been problems around group projects of uh, you know, group uh, housing um, the number of years that people have to wait to become housed together if they want to come together as families, they end up moving out of the county as well. So mm. um, th- there's a lot of uh, complications, I suppose. Um, again, literacy is another issue um, because it's very, uh, a lot of the application forms are very detailed, applying through the choice-based letting um, providing documentation when literacy levels we know are very low mm. in the housing community or in the traveller community and the Roma Gypsy community as well. Um, but we can't forget the, that community too 
because we have a lot of that in, in County Loud and they're not really being identified as well under the travellers or they don't realise that they're being identified as travellers and that they can um, be provided with additional supports. And a lot of these people find it very hard to uh, get rented accommodation. Like in Loud, we have over 3,200, I think, um, people accessing housing assistance through private rental properties. But often travellers will uh, find that they will be refused private rental. And um, mm. a lot of the time their families are quite big, so it's hard to find accommodation suitable for them. And a lot of them can be in homeless hubs as well for very long periods of time while trying to find suitable accommodation. Mm. But there, there is money there. Uh, I mean, there's 12 million mm. or, or thereabouts that hasn't been mm. drawn down. 6.2 out of a, a fund of 18 million has been drawn down. Uh, and looking at the figures in the Irish Times today, uh, places like Kilkenny and Offaly, where uh, they've secured or drawn down more than three quarters of a, a million euro uh, and possibly more available to those counties. Uh, mm. I, I don't know. Some of those challenges could be tackled uh, if the funding was applied for, I gather. Yeah, well, looking back on some of the um, the issues uh, that have been highlighted with the council is that oftentimes plan permission have been refused for traveller-specific accommodation, um, problem around residence and discrimination, as I say again. Um, so, and again, you're looking at Kilkenny and they're drawing down what seems a large amount of money, but in fact, they're probably only housing about two, um, about maybe three or four houses out of that money. Now, the Irish... Um, the Quality Commission have identified that you know there should be more affordable housing um, through the affordable housing bodies for travellers in Loud. That was one of their specific recommendations, um, and that also that you know helping to identify the wider traveller community that they will be identified and the supports will be given to um, to travellers to access these um, traveller supports. So I, I'm not sure what is happening that Loud hasn't on that. One of the issues, um, again, identified in that report is that we don't have a traveller liaison officer. So somebody who the travellers can just specifically go to, there's a drop-in clinic that they know that they will deal with them specifically. Um, it isn't something I've been highlighting in the council as well, that we don't have a social inclusion officer. You know, these are people that would be identifying the issues that travellers um you know, find challenge, uh, find difficult in um, accessing supports. Mm. So I think we could do a lot more work in that regard. Um, but there are social workers, there are staff who um, are well versed in dealing with the traveller community. Um, so I, I don't doubt that Loud County Council are assisting, but there is always um, ways that we can do more. For example, that uh, review um, wasn't consulted. Um, the the Equality Commission review and the council didn't consult traveller groups in their review and that was noted in the report as well and it's very difficult to get travellers um, sometimes to the meetings and we have to identify why they're finding it hard to engage with the council so if you're not getting the travellers voices um, at that level it can be difficult then to really specifically know how to um, you know meet their needs as well so we really do need to identify um, how we can help travellers more. Okay. 
We'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. The Mayor of uh, Drogheda Labour Party Councillor Michelle Hall. Uh, before we go, somebody in touch asking us about power cuts and what will they do to power electric cars in such a situation. Thanks to Peter in Dalka for that. Somebody else saying drugs are, are drugs. Uh, people who argue to legalise them uh, might say that you can drive if you take uh, cannabis. Gino Kenny was talking bull, says David. Thanks, David. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237.